Good morning. This is the first series in a, a series that we're starting on the book of Genesis, which are, we're actually going to be looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis between now and Christmas. And it's actually, if you can turn to Genesis 1 if you have a Bible with you. And uh, actually, this sermon series I planned probably last year sometime. And as it turns out, this is our first morning in this new building. And it's uh, the morning that we're starting Genesis 1, the, the book of beginnings, the beginnings of the Bible. And uh, so it's a good book for us to turn to as now as we uh, come to a new community and kind of have a new start for our church plant. So um, if, you'd, if you'd open up to, uh, to Genesis 1, let's read together Genesis 1, beginning verse 1. This is God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you uh, for your word, and that from the beginning you were speaking. And when you spoke, beauty, life, burst forth. And we pray now as we open your word that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage that we're looking at today is certainly one of the most controversial passages in the whole Bible. Uh, the Bible doesn't shy away from controversy. Book one, page one, starts challenging our views of how we see the world. Actually, it's, this chapter was is equally as controversial 3,500 years ago when it was written by Moses as it is today. And it challenged the worldviews of, of the Egyptians and the, and the neighbors of Israel uh, back when it was originally written in the same way that it challenges our, our culture today. And uh, before we uh, get into it, let me just say one thing about the doctrine of creation, and specifically about the question of how old the earth, how old the earth is, kind of the big question behind this chapter. Um, there are many uh, Bible-believing, uh, faithful to the Scriptures Christians who believe that the, the Bible is the inspired Word of God, is infallible, it's inerrant, and yet who believe very different things about what this uh, what this text means. You know, some people say it's a literal twenty-four hour. Periods. Some people say that the days, the six days of creation, there each day is an age or a, you know, it's a million years, thousands of years. And, uh, and some people say the whole week is just kind of an analogy. God has a work week. God works like us. And he's trying to trying to relate to our life. And so, um, actually, in our denomination, uh, this is uh, we've decided that there's there's basically three different kinds of beliefs or doctrines that Christians have. Uh, there's first doctrines, beliefs that you would die for. So uh, Jesus is God. Um, you know the Apostles' Creed, basic. Uh, Jesus dies for sins. His he, his body rose from the dead. Um, uh, the the core of what it means to be a Christian. And then there's kind of a second level of beliefs that are beliefs that there's a large amount of biblical data about. They're not. You don't have to believe all of them to be a Christian, but. Um, but there's a lot, if you're going to really be faithful to the Bible, you're going to believe these things. So it would be something like uh, that, that God is uh, sovereign over salvation, that uh, salvation belongs to the Lord, that he pursues us, that he saves us, that we don't, uh, we actually do nothing in salvation. 
Um, but uh, he chooses us, he uh, gives faith to us, and he is the initiator. So that, that, that's kind of the theme of the whole Bible, that he's the hero and he comes and rescues us. So that, so that would be kind of secondary to the doctrines of grace. And then there's also a third category of doctrines um, that we would describe as personal convictions. And we actually put the doctrine of creation, how old is the earth, uh, what do the days mean, into the personal convictions. Because there's actually not a lot of data in the Bible about what these days mean, how, how was the earth created. There's not a lot of data. So uh, we say, you know what, we're, gonna have, we're not going to divide over this. We're going to be unified. We're going to discuss it. It's important. It's in the, it's in the Bible. And, uh, but we're not going to divide over it. And so actually, as I was, I was preparing for this sermon, I was down in Seattle at a church down there. And I, I was using some of their space. My family was visiting family down in Seattle. And I was using some space in this church. And I had all of my Genesis commentaries. I was getting ready for this sermon series. And the pastor, who was a pastor there, came in. And he's actually kind of a, he's a mentor of mine. And, and he's like, oh, you do a sermon on Genesis. All right, well, what are you going to do with Genesis 1? And so I said, well, you know, I'm actually, I'm probably going to kind of catalog the different options. I'm going to say, hey, these are different things that you can believe that are all faithful to the scripture. And, and you can pick one of those, whatever it works for you, and, and choose which one you like. So I'm going to just kind of give them the different options. And what he said to me was, you know what, that's not your job. No, you can't do that. <laughs> that's not what they're paying you for. Uh, your job is to tell them what the text means. And uh, frankly, if I was in your shoes, that's, that's what I would want. I wouldn't want you to come and tell me a bunch of different things that I could believe about this. I'd want, you, I'd want my pastor to tell me, what, what does he believe? How does he deal with this text? And what should I believe about it? Uh, I want, uh, isn't that what you want? <laughs> you want me to solve the riddle, right? Solve the riddle for me. And well, okay, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to solve the riddle for you. And as it turns out, uh, the key... Solving the riddle of Genesis 1 is the same key that solves every riddle in the universe. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one that when you put him at the center of your understanding of the universe and the world and why it's here, everything begins to make sense. Everything looks sharper. Everything becomes more colorful. Um, everything becomes clearer. And uh, as it turns out that when we do that, when we put Christ at the at the center of this text and our center of the universe, we find out that this text not, not only has things to say about how, old, how the world was created and how old it is, uh, but it also has uh, things to tell us about um, our own community, this community, this Birchwood community that we're turning into, and even our own hearts. And so uh, what we're going to do is we, as we look at this creation story, we're going to look at it under three headings. Um, the historical meaning of this text, the scientific meaning of this text, and the biblical meaning of this text. We have a lot uh, to cover, and I'm, I'm, I'm really going to be scratching the surface because this passage is so rich, but uh, let's just begin with the historical meaning of the text. Now, what I mean by the historical meaning is what actually happened in creation. You know, how did the world as we know it get here? And uh, the, Well, the text begins with these famous words in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now the first thing to notice is that in verses 1 and 2, the whole universe, including the earth, have been created out of nothing even before the six days of creation have begun. 
So the six days of creation begin when God says, and, let, and God said, let there be light. And that, that was going to be the first days when God creates light. But the universe has already been created. So what that means is the Bible really leaves wide open how old is the universe. It, it, it doesn't say. It says in these two verses that God created out of nothing. And so really our scientific estimates are, are as good a guess as any. You know, whatever science says, how long ago the Big Bang was, that's fine. It, that doesn't contradict with Scripture at all. But the, uh, the bigger question, which that doesn't answer, is about how long has this earth been uh, as we know it, you know, full of life? When did life come about? When did uh, God make all the plants and the fish and the birds? And, and uh, the thing that makes earth distinct from all the other plants, when did that happen? Well, the text goes on... Uh, to say that over the course of six days, God speaks into existence light, oceans, plants, birds, fish, animals, and humans. And many, and in fact, many Christians, uh, Christians actually who love Jesus more than I do, or smarter than I do, would say that uh, these are um, either metaphoric days, or that these days are kind of referring to long periods of time. So, for example, in Psalm 90, it says that uh, to the Lord, uh, uh, a, a thousand years is, is like a day to him. So uh, these days, they, these could be long periods of time, and they just seem like a day to, to the Lord. And uh, so the, it's not literally saying that in 24 hours, in, short, these, in a short six-day period, God created all the life that was in the planet. And I... Now, that's, that's, that's reasonable, I understand that, but the problem for me is that whenever we're reading the Bible, um, the, how, the question that we need to ask, we say, what does this text mean? What is it, how do we interpret this text? The first thing that we have to ask is, what did the original author who was writing this, to his original audience, uh, intend when he was writing it? And um, it, it seems plain to me that what Moses, uh, Moses who's writing Genesis uh, to Israel, who's just uh, come out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and he's writing Genesis to tell them about the God that saved them, uh, that it, it's hard for me to imagine that his original audience would have understand, understood these six days as anything else but one of their days, because especially on the seventh day, God rested from his work, and then they have a seventh day that God says, just like God rested on his seventh day, you're going to rest on your seventh day, and they're the same kind of day. So it seems to me that it's hard to come up with the, the original audience, the original author, on meaning anything different than these are literal 24-hour days. So now obviously that's a problem because... Why does the Grand Canyon look like it's 17 million years old? And you know, we have fossils of Homo sapiens that are... 160,000 years old, and the Bible says that Adam and Eve probably lived 6,000 to 10,000 years ago. <laughs> They're the first humans, and uh, we have a major uh, conflict because the world looks like it came into existence by natural processes. Natural processes brought it into existence, and yet the Bible seems to say God all of a sudden uh, just threw together this earth in the course of six days. Well, in, uh, in 1947, C.S. Lewis wrote really a wonderful book called Miracles, which uh, if, you, if you read it, make sure that you keep reading past the first five chapters. The first five chapters are a little thick, and then it really gets, really gets good in the second half of the book. Um, and uh, Lewis was writing to modern people, you know, scientific people, who were beginning to say, you know, okay, we understand that back in the day when uh, 
Jesus was living, people thought that miracles could happen, but now, ever since the Enlightenment, since the scientific age, and Newton, and we know now that, that miracles can't happen, and so he's giving a defense of why that's really uh, not sound reasoning. Why can miracles happen? And, and one of those chapters, um, Lewis uh, makes really a brilliant observation that Jesus, uh, in his miracles, even though they're supernatural miracles, they're not anti-natural miracles. You know, Jesus doesn't get into an argument with a Pharisee and turn him into a duck. And, or you know, he doesn't make trees start talking. Things that never happen in nature, he doesn't do that. He does things like he turns water into wine. You know, every year, water turns into wine. So the, the rain comes out of the clouds, goes in through the soil, uh, goes up through the plant. The plant kind of changes it into a, a, into a grape. And then we take the grapes, we smash the grapes, and, and, we, uh, and you get wine. So the process of turning water into wine is a natural process. And, um, and so Jesus, in turning water into wine, is doing something that he's been doing in creation, that God's been doing in creation every year for millennia. And, uh, and what he, the, mere, the miraculous part was that he did it quickly. He short-circuited the process. That through him, uh, he did a natural process, but he did it quickly. And uh, by the way, just uh, as a side note, in case some of you thought that wine was our idea and not God's. I don't know if you, if you ever go to the store and you buy grapes and you see there's this kind of white residue on the grapes and maybe you try to wash them really and scrub them off to, because you think the white residue is you know, some kind of pesticide or something. Well, the white residue on grapes is actually yeast that grows naturally on, on the outside of the skin of grapes. And on the inside of the skin is sugars and the juice. And so what a grape is is basically a little package that God's made that's waiting for you to smash. And when you smash it, the yeast and the sugars on the inside, which are separated by the skins, combine, and then that's what you need for fermentation. That's what you need to make wine. So it's, it's like this little gift to us, God, God idea, God's idea um, to make wine. And so uh, Jesus' miracles are acts of him doing something very quickly, which usually take him a long time to do, um, but he doesn't nonetheless. So actually, Shannon and I, we, this last year, we had a Bible study in our home with a couple of our neighbors, and they're, they're actually both have PhDs in biology. He's a professor at Western. She's a lecturer there. And we were looking through the Gospel of John, and we, we came to John chapter 2, where Jesus changes the water into wine. I was telling them, oh, this is how, uh, you know, this is what C.S. Lewis says about this, that, that uh, Jesus does these natural processes, and he just does them quickly. And uh, they look at each other, and they say, oh, Jesus is a transformer. I'm, you know, I'm kind of sitting there. there. I, it's obvious to me they're having a technical conversation. You know, they're not saying Jesus is some kind of robot that... Uh, turns into a semi-truck or something. Jesus is transforming some kind of technical language in biology. And uh, what I derived from that was that plants are, you know, that some kind of transformation happens from water into grapes. And uh, that is a biological process and that Jesus was doing that. He was the one who became the transformer. But it sounds like Jesus was doing what a plant does normally, but he did it quickly. And so, you know, if you took the wine that Jesus made and you studied it under a microscope, this would be old age wine. Good wine is aged. Uh, but he made it quickly. And, uh, you know, Jesus does this with other things. For example, you have uh, a storm. You know, there's a hurricane that just this week went up the East Coast. And uh, hurricanes, they're 
eventually calm down and become calm by natural processes. But Jesus, there's a time when he's on a boat and there's a windstorm and there's waves crashing. The disciples are scared and Jesus speaks to the, the wind and the waves and tells them to be, be still, be calm. And they do, they obey him. Uh, he does a natural process quickly. Or uh, you could say if you, Jesus multiplies bread and, and fish. You know, he has a little bit of bread and fish and he feeds the 5,000 with them. Every year we take a little bit of corn put it in the ground, we get a lot of corn. God makes, takes a little bit of corn and makes a lot of corn. Or, or you take a fish, fish uh, lays eggs, and you got one fish and makes a lot of fish. And so this multiplying is something that God does all the time, and yet Jesus did it. He was showing himself to be the creator. It's not anti-natural, but supernatural. And so, as I said at the beginning, Jesus being the transformer is really the key to the riddle of this story in Genesis 1. In making all these things, and making the world... He, did not, he didn't do something anti-natural. He did a natural process, but he did it quickly. And that's the miracle of creation, that God created the world. He did it quickly. Now, uh, some of you say, okay, that's, I understand. I see Jesus in John 2 doing, turning the water into wine, but where do you, where do you see Jesus in Genesis 1? Uh, how, can you bring, how can you bring Jesus all the way from the New Testament as a way later after Moses all the way back to Genesis 1 and stick him in the story? Uh, well, in fact, uh, the New Testament says that all things were made through Jesus. And uh, in fact, John 1, uh, the beginning of John's gospel, he says, he refers to Jesus as the Word. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then as we look back uh, to these verses we're looking at, it says, verse 1, in the beginning was God. Then in verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering. And then in verse 3, and God said, let there be light. So we have God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God. That's the whole trinity there. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. All their creation. Um, and it's through the Word, which is Jesus, that everything was made. And in fact, if you read commentators about Genesis 1, one of the things they say is uh, that the, the literary style of Genesis 1 is different than the rest of Genesis. It, it has this... Uh, these refrains that, and God saw everything that he made, and it was good, and uh, it was evening, it was morning the first day, or the, the, the nth day, or, or God said, let this happen. There's this um, re repetition in style, like Genesis 1 is almost like a song. And so it's as if Jesus is the transforming song of God who brings all the beauty in the world into creation, in, into existence. And so that's what happened. And so uh, that's just kind of the historical meaning of the text, what happened. And to, uh, and to summarize, kind of, the universe may be old, but Jesus formed the earth into its present form, not inconsistent with natural processes, but quickly. He did it quickly. Um, he made, so the universe might be old, um, but the life in, in making the world into all its vitality and beauty, Jesus did quickly because he is the word of God who speaks into existence. So now that leads to our second, second point the scientific meaning of the text. Now, now of course, what I've said uh, so far uh, is not only a minority view in a culture like ours, you know, especially in a highly educated community like Bellingham with a university. Um, many people would say that they probably couldn't have a rational conversation with me. I know someone who's uh, he's a professor who would say, I, it's hard for me to think that I could have a rational conversation if you, if you think that God made the world quickly, uh, in a fairly recently. So what, what I want to do is take a few minutes to just give kind of a cursory explanation of, of how I think this understanding of Genesis 1 works with science. 
So first, um, I would admit that I, I don't know everything. I think it is essential that this text shape our view of the world, but I need to recognize that I don't understand the earth or God's word enough to be overly dogmatic about the age of the earth and even evolution and what role it might have played in God's working. And I think that even studying the earth is kind of like studying the Bible. You know, when you read the Bible, you come across all kinds of problems and things you don't understand. And you don't just throw it out and say, well, I don't get it. It doesn't fit, so I'll get rid of it. You just keep reading. You keep digging. And then things begin to come together. And I think that happens in the earth, too. Keep digging, you know, archaeologically. Keep digging. See what's there. As Christians, I think we can be involved in that. And I even think that uh, this, this understanding that Jesus did not, did not do something anti-natural, but he followed a natural process and he did it quickly, invites us to participate in the scientific community. That, you know, carbon dating and seeing how, how old things uh, appear to be and how long they took because we think Jesus works according to natural processes. We can, we can respect that in creation. And uh, so that as Christians, I think we can actually in some ways see the earth as both young and old because Jesus followed that natural process. Um, uh, now, one question that we might ask is, are there any places uh, where we see science in the Bible kind of agreeing? Are they totally, do, uh, do they have totally different views of, of, of creation and, and life and where things came about? Well, I think one of the most important, I mean, there, there's several things that, um, that could be said about this, but one thing that I think is striking is that uh, even, even though uh, anthropologists and evolutionary biologists put uh, the, the beginning of Homo sapien as a species, our species, you know, about 150 to 200,000 years ago, the, uh, the dating of when humans began to be uh, farmers, agricultural, civiliz- uh, uh, you know, farmers working the ground, starting civilization, starting cities and, and organizing uh, that kind of human life is, is still dated to about 10,000 years ago, which is really where um, the Bible dates the beginning you know, of, when, of when Adam was created and made in the image of God. You know, and he was a farmer. He worked in the garden, and his kids were shepherds and, and, and uh, gardeners, and his grandkids you know, began to work with metal and, and had all these skills. So, so there's a... Um, consistency of when the Bible says this kind of civilization and life began with anthropology and, and, uh, and study of artifacts. So there, there's an agreement there. But I, I think that one thing that we need to also say is that on the, same, on the one hand, that as Christians, that we, we can be humble and say, listen, I don't understand the whole earth. I don't even understand the whole Bible. I, I can't be overly dogmatic about how the world came into existence. But I think the, the scientific community needs to do the same thing. Because one of the things that happens in science, and physicists probably uh, experience this the most, is the more we learn about the universe and about God's creation, is the more we learn that we don't know about it. And, and yet the, the atmosphere in a university and academic setting is very, like, we have the universe in our brains. And uh, if, you, if you disagree with us, if you don't see it the way, you, the way we see it, you must be uneducated fool for thinking that way. And, um, and yet, um, God has sprinkled the creation with incalculable clues that tell us that the theory of evolution is really too simple an explanation for the origins of life. Probably the, the most um, famous example is the eyeball 
Um, the eyeball contains like a high-end digital camera, a self-adjusting aperture, an automatic focusing system, a sensitivity range can adjust to sunlight or moonlight, which no camera can do, and it uh, quickly adjusts to different lighting conditions, incandescent, fluorescent sunlight. So it, it's a high-end camera in your eyeball, a higher end than, than any camera out there. And beyond that, you have various parts of the eyeball that uh, unless uh, they have one another, they're useless. So, you know, a retina is useless without a lens, and a lens is useless without a retina. And so you have these two different, very different parts that have no evolu evolutionary value whatsoever by themselves. So they would have had to evolve simultaneously and uh, developed simultaneously and worked together simultaneously. And uh, the chance of that happening, you know, I'm a mathematician, but you don't have to be a mathematician to know that that, that kind of thing happening uh, the chances of that kind of thing happening are astronomical. And that's just one part of creation, just an eyeball. And that's not to include just all the little muscles in the, in the eye that need to, to work together. And, and there are millions of other examples of, the, of this kind of thing in, in creation where things would have had to evolve simultaneously. And uh, for that to happen with such precision is, is highly unlikely. But the deeper, uh, but even more than that, the question that we should be asking is what do we think we are? If evolution is true, uh, what that means is that you are, you're just a bag of gases and juices. You know, you're kind of a bony bag of gases and juices walking around um, with your juices squirting a certain way on the inside. And uh, you think that you're, you're meaningful and you're important, but really you're just a bunch of atoms that happen to be colliding in a certain way that it, that's entirely meaningless. Or, uh, this beautiful world is the artwork. You are... Um, the craftsmanship of God. You've been formed and uh, meticulously thought through with care and love by God. And all the beauty is an expression of God's love and who he is in his person and his glory. And, and every piece of creation, every square inch is charged with meaning because it was, it was created by God. Those are, those are the two worldviews that are set before us. And because the question of, of, of creation and evolution is not simply a question about data, you know, how old the earth is, but it is a question of what is the story of the world? What is the story that you and I are living in? Because if you go up to Western, you talk to biologists, you say, hey, where, where did the, all the life in the world come from? They, they don't give you lab data. They don't say, well, here's, here's a printout of statistical data. They don't do that. They might give you a little of that, but basically they're going to tell you a story. I'm going to say, well, um, way, once upon a time, you know, another way of saying 4.5 or however many, million, hundreds of millions of years ago, it, there was this crashing ocean and, and amino acids happened, um, the stars were aligned and these amino acids happened to collide, right? And there was this first amoeba all by itself out in this vast ocean, all the elements, all odds against it, yet it managed to multiply and it's, uh, it's, most gifted children um, grew uh, fins and began to swim and uh, learned to, to conquer the elements and eventually made it to land and rose up and grew legs and, and eventually grew up to be the king of the earth. So you have the, the it's, it's got all the marks of a, it's a great myth. The poor uh, peasant amoeba, uh, amoeba rises up to be king of the earth. It's like an American dream. American dream. That's, that's what evolution is. Um, and Yet only the fittest children in this story survive. Only the most gifted, only, only the, the ones that are most skilled, the strongest. 
And so the story of evolution says that the story we are living in, the source of all the beauty and everything, that, all the vitality that we see in the world, the source of all that is that the strong eat the weak. Uh, the gifted get to live. The strong get to live. Um, the, uh, the fittest get to live. And in our culture, you know, that's exactly how we live. If you are strong, if you're smart, if you're capable, if you're creative and good-looking, the sky's the limit. But if you're not, we throw you out. If you can't go to college and do well, if you're not outgoing and winsome, if, uh, if you're not hardworking, then what good are you? And that is because we believe that the story of the world is as strong as the weak. And the Bible says that we are living in a radically different story than that. That uh, evolution has the story of the world wrong. And that's why Genesis 1 is so utterly important uh, to us. And so that moves us to our third point, the biblical meaning of this passage. Now, it's important to understand that Genesis uh, is not a book that just floated down out of heaven, you know, who knows when on gold plates and says, this is where the world came from. Uh, God's truth is always pastoral. And that's right. It's always, all, all the books of the Bible are always pastoral writings, books or letters written to a certain group of people um, to help them uh, walk humbly with God. And, so, and Genesis certainly that way. And the, the book of Genesis was written by Moses in the wilderness uh, after God had delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And uh, you know, there were the ten plagues and uh, Pharaoh finally said, get out of here. And, and God parts the Red Sea and, uh, through Moses. And then Israel is wandering in the wilderness for 40 years waiting to enter into the fruitful land of Canaan, God had promised them. And it was during that time of wandering in the wilderness that uh, Moses wrote to them, wrote for them Genesis as a reminder of the God who they're trusting in. And you see this pa the pastoral intent of this book right here in the very beginning. Uh, look at what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Now that expression, without form, without form and void, is a Hebrew word, tohu vabohu, which means nothingness or chaos disorder. It's disorder in the earth. There was nothingness. It was blank. And, Mo, uh, and Moses, you know, he, he wrote the Pentateuch, later uses this same phrase in the, in the end of the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy 32, talking to the same people. And he uses that same word tohu again, uh, tohu again, but this time he's talking about the desert. He's talking about Israel in the desert. And, you know, they're looking around in the desert land that they're li living in, waiting to go into the promised land, which has the trees and, the, you know, uh, fertility and abundance. Uh, they're waiting to go into that, but right now they're living in the tohu, in the, dis in the disorder and the nothingness and the waste. And this is what it says in, in Deuteronomy 32. He found, this God found Israel in the desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. That's, that's, uh, uh, that's Tohu. Uh, you have Israel wandering, wandering in the desert and they're aimless, they're weak, they're tired, they're thirsty, they're unfaithful, they're sinning, the opposite of the strong and, and the fittest. The complete opposite of the survival of the fittest. Not this courageous amoeba fighting off all the, all the elements, but a stumbling and helpless people. That's what they are. In the howling waste of the wilderness. And this is what Moses says God did. God encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. God finds his people living in chaos in a desolate waste and he encircles and cares for them and cherishes them as the apple of his eye. And that is what Genesis 1 is about. 
It is not the story of life coming out of the strongest and the fittest and the hardest working, the most winsome and the best looking. That's, that's, what, that's the evolution story. It's really the best looking, <laughs> strong and good looking. It is the story of God coming of his own initiative to a desolate waste and saying, let there be light. That is the story of the world. And in fact, the whole Bible is about those two competing storylines. Are you attempting the survival of the fittest in your life? Are you trying everything to be the fittest? Or are you trusting the God who speaks into the tohu vabohu? Because the story of Jesus being the transformer, of course, uh, is not just in Genesis 1. Look at, this is an amazing verse in, in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says this, For God... Who said, let light, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, right? He's talking about Genesis, he's quoting Genesis 1, 1. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on in the very next chapter to say, what of us? That those who have trusted in Jesus are a new creation, a new creation. That what God did through Jesus, the transformer in Genesis 1, he's doing again in gospel. And believing the gospel is exactly this. It's, it, it's rejecting the storyline of the survival of the fittest, the strongest, the best, the, uh, a winning, and the weak and sinning and competent losing. That's what evolution says. My life, but, but the storyline of the Bible, the storyline of the gospel is my life is tohu vabohu. It's desolate, it's weak, uh, it's chaotic, it's formless and void, and God coming in with his word and shaping it uh, and forming it. In fact, when uh, you know, I became a Christian and uh, believed in Jesus, uh, my life was certainly a desolate waste. You know, I dropped out of school and I left home and uh, you know, broke relationships. And, and uh, you know, I just basically wanted to smoke weed until I was 25 and then die. And, uh, and then God came into my life and said, let there be light. He came into that desolate waste and he said, let there be light. And you know, there, I, there, I remember there was this uh, a gal that... Um, before I'd become a Christian, I'd really treated very, uh, I would say, cruelly. Um, you know, not just kind of a light teasing, but, you know, really made her life difficult in high school. And uh, later, after I'd become a Christian, I went to this Young Life conference, and I was walking down one of the halls, and she walked by, and she kind of looked at me, and she said, what are you doing here? Um, and clearly, you know, clearly even some emotion still in there. What are you doing here? I said, well, you know, I became a Christian, and... Um, God changed my life. I love Jesus, and I'm here. And she, you know, she had to sit down for a minute and, and take a deep breath, and so she didn't hyperventilate. And uh, and what she said was this: you know, never in a million years would I have imagined you seeing you here, seeing your life change, seeing seeing a new life in you. You not being cruel, you not being someone I hate, and uh, never in a million years would I imagine that. And you see the process um, that normally would have taken a million years. When God, when God speaks in Christ into our lives, he transforms us. He brings new life um, that by a natural process would have taken millions of years. He does it quickly. And in fact, actually, uh, I've shared this with you before that um, after I become a, became a Christian, my, you know, my parents were obviously shocked. You know, I have a new life. I, I actually care about them. I want to be their friends. And, and one of the things they said is that you say, you know, you became a Christian and on the one hand, your life is radically different. You're a totally different person. And yet, on the other hand, you're still the same old name. And what they're saying is that God, when he spoke to us, spoke in Christ, he didn't do something anti-natural. He did something supernatural. 
and he trans he transformed and so so that it's still me and uh, it's that same transforming, initiating, speaking into the desolate waste God that we meet at the beginning of the Bible all the way to the very end. It's that same God who comes into weakness, comes into sin, comes into chaos, uh, comes into thirsting, and says, let there be light. And uh, now, before I conclude, let me just, I just want to think about this passage about what God is saying about let there be light and Jesus transforming the Tovabohu in light of this new building that God has given us. It's just a sheer gift here in this Birchwood neighborhood. Um, this week, I met with the principal at the elementary school next door. And uh, just asking him a little bit more about the neighborhood and about his experience, some of the kids that are in his class. And um, he really uh, opened my eyes a bit uh, to this neighborhood. Uh, this school has the highest rate of homeless kids, uh, highest rate of mobility. 70% of the kids are at the poverty level. They have, you know, getting free lunches, uh, many in single-parent homes, many in homes with drugs. And in fact, he told me that uh, last year uh, there was a 30-day stretch in, when, in which he either had you know, an ambulance driver or a, a police, police officer, an investigator in his office talking to him about some student. For 30 days straight, he, he had that. So these kids, uh, a lot of crisis happening. These kids, a lot of disorder, a lot of, uh, a lot of chaos. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he went on to say that um, uh, this is even kind of a dis declining neighborhood. That, uh, that he would say the Cordata neighborhood is really booming and, and growing. And uh, here they, at this school, three years ago, they had 340 students enrolled. And uh, last year, they had 240. So there's a decrease in families moving in here, of stability. And I, you know, I'll, I'll be candid with you that my first response uh, to this was, you know, I'm a church planter. Church planters are always, you know, go start a church in the up-and-coming neighborhoods, growing neighborhoods, and be a part of its formation, and, and go to where new things are happening. And my first response is like, maybe this is the wrong decision. Maybe we shouldn't have come to this building. Maybe we shouldn't have come to this neighborhood. It was a declining neighborhood. Why, why are we coming here? And uh, Genesis 1 deeply humbles that whole idea. Why would I come into this tohu vabohu? Why would I come into this desolate, what's desolate and chaotic here? The reason is because the whole storyline of the Bible is that it's in the desolate waste that God speaks and says, let there be light. And he does things that we think would have taken millions of years by natural process, and he does them quickly in Christ. Transformation happens. And that's why we're here. And it's a, a joy that we get to watch God as he continues to create, as the creator and now the creator of new life here in this neighborhood. May we get to see him do it over and over again. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. And uh, we thank you uh, that you are not a God that looks for the fittest, for the strongest. Oh Lord, you know that we are not that. We are weak, sinning, and in need of you. And we trust you and we rejoice. Um, that evolution is not the story of our world, but the story of our world is a God who creates by the power of his words through Christ the transformer. So we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.